Well, brethren, I would ask that you would turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And I would ask that you would follow along as I read out loud verses 36 through 46. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to him, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And may the Spirit that inspired these words Bless them to our hearts and souls this evening. Dr. Beakey, we're looking forward to your word. Please come now and minister to us. Well, I'm very grateful to uh, be here with you tonight and uh, this week. I always enjoy ministering to, uh, to Baptists. I've been called a closet Baptist by many Presbyterian. So, because I'm always insisting that children need to be born again. And uh, I'd, I've told many people in my life, if I had to choose between being a Baptist and being a presumptive regenerationist, I'd choose being a Baptist hands down. Actually, I preach as much in Baptist churches as Reformed and Presbyterian around the world. Um, recently, I came back from the UK and I was on the plane, I was writing out some notes, and suddenly I realized I preached 19 times over there, and all 19 times were in Baptist churches. <laughs> some years ago, Tom Askell, uh, from the Founders uh, Conference, uh, asked me to come down and, and be the main speaker in Birmingham, Alabama. And I said, uh, Tom, what, what are you doing asking a, a Pato Baptist to, to come down and be the main speaker in a Baptist conference like that? And he said, well, we're hoping to convert you before you come. (laughs) Turn with me, please, to John 18. John 18. I'm so glad that uh, John read from Matthew 26. I want to read uh, a complimentary uh, part of Jesus in Gethsemane from John 18. In these three evenings, by the way, as you're turning there, let me say that I'm not going to try to cover the whole terrain of Gethsemane in great detail or Gabbatha or Golgotha. There's just too much there. And I would end up skating on the surface and saying things that you all already know. So I want to look more in depth. I will say some things about the whole of Gethsemane, but I want to look more in depth at Gethsemane, Gabbatha and Golgotha as it's coming to the end, as each place of suffering is coming to the end and get to the the heart of it and hopefully get some depth, and and go down rather than spread ourselves out thin. Hear the Word of God from John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which He entered and His disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed Him, knew the place, 
For Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me. Shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. May God bless the reading of his sacred and infallible word. John 18 introduces us to the most solemn 24 hours the history of this world has ever known. 24 hours packed with the sufferings of Jesus. And we are so prone theologically, and rightly so, to view these hours as hours of atonement that we sometimes are prone to forget all the events crowded and packed in real time into these 24 hours. We're prone to lose sight of the action and the tension and the horror and the pain and the shame and the bravery of our 33-year-old Savior. Dear brothers and sisters, Jesus did not suffer and die a theoretical death. It was a real suffering. And here in John 18, knowing all things that should come upon him, in Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha, he pulls back the curtain of the holy place and he enters into the holy place. And at Golgotha, he will enter into the holy of holies. But even in this holy place, no one can enter. He must trod the winepress alone. And so the culmination of his sufferings, consists of these last 24 hours that take place in Gethsemane, the Garden of Agony, Gabbatha, the Judgment Hall of Pilate, and Golgotha, the Hill of Execution. Our chapter this evening begins with Jesus and his disciples leaving Jerusalem after celebrating the Passover. The disciples have just argued among themselves which one of them was the greatest. What a trial for Jesus, his own disciples were. Maybe there's brothers in the ministry sitting here tonight, and maybe some of your fellow church leaders have given you such heartache, but not as deep as the heartache of Jesus. And yet this Jesus said, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Just after they were arguing, after a three-year seminary training, who was the greatest among them? Three years you've been teaching them. You have to be a servant. And this is what he faced as he's entering into the agony of his sufferings. And still he says, with great desire, I've desired to have this supper with you. And he turns to Gethsemane, now post-supper, and he goes forth. He went forth 
with his disciples to a place he often went, a quiet place, a beautiful place on the lower slope of the Mount of Olives, where there were large, massive olive trees, where the Lord often went to pray. And by the way, some of those olive trees are still there. They're 2,000 years old. I've had the privilege of being there twice. Once when the Palestinians were on strike and there was no one hardly around. And I was the first one off the bus and I had about five minutes alone in that garden. It's one of the most realistic places in all of Israel. And it didn't take much imagination to picture in my mind my Savior crawling on the ground as a worm and no man under those trees, writhing in agony for my sin, for your sin. He went forth. He went forth knowing all things, John says, that should come upon him. That's amazing. Sometimes people say, and, and you've said it yourself perhaps, if I, if I knew what I had to go through, I, I, I never could have faced it. I never could have gone through it. Or I couldn't go through it again. But Jesus knew every detail. And He went forward. He set His face as a flint to Jerusalem. Because He loved His Father. And because, dear believer, He loved you. He went forth knowing. Knowing the bitter suffering that was going to be required of Him. Knowing that His hand-picked disciple, one of the twelve, Judas, would betray Him for a paltry sum of money. He went forth knowing He'd be whipped and beaten and spat upon. Knowing the hairs of His beard would be plucked out. Knowing that great nails would be driven through His hands and feet. He knew went forth knowing well how full and how bitter the cup was that He must drink down to its bottom bitter dregs. He went forth knowing He'd be surrendering into the hands of the most merciless men on the planet. Wicked men who would say, crucify Him. And knowing He would abide under the darkness of the wrath of God, His own Father, for three long dark hours where He'd be rejected by heaven and earth and hell and even the sun would shine upon Him. And there He'd be hanging between them all, rejected by them all, forsaken of His own Father, and cry out the cry of dereliction, My God! My God! Why hast Thou forsaken Me? Knowing all this, undaunted, strong in His determination to finish the work, to lay down His life for His people, He went forth. If there's any, anything that's comforting in the Christian religion, it's this. He went forth to do all this for you, dear believer, knowing how badly you treat Him. Knowing that the best of your best is but as a filthy rag of righteousness in His sight. Knowing that you are no better, no different than the disciples, the sleeping disciples, the arguing disciples, the competing disciples, the forsaking disciples. He went forth. Not as a martyr, not as a helpless victim, but as the willing, suffering servant of Jehovah, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, as the Lamb of God. And I want to paint for you tonight this picture of this glorious Gethsemane Savior, both as King, the Lion, and as Lamb, in one garden, in one setting. So I want to particularly focus with you this evening on verses 7 and 8 and 12 and 13a. He asked them again, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He answered, I've told you I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. And then 12, then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away. So my theme tonight is Gethsemane's King Lamb. And we'll look at just two thoughts. First, the king's threefold sovereignty. And second, the lamb's threefold submission. The king's threefold sovereignty, the lamb's threefold submission. Well, only 11 disciples entered the garden with Jesus. Painful though that was for him. And only three 
Go further into the garden. Jesus had his special friends, even among the eleven. It's proper and fitting for his servants to have special friends as well. But even the three could not go into the heart of the garden. Jesus had to go a stone's throw even beyond them. And then he fell, the Bible says. He didn't get down on his knees. I don't know if you've ever had that experience in your life. That you were so distressed, you couldn't just get down on your knees, but you fell. You fell to the earth under sorrow and agony. That's what happened to Jesus here. There are no words. No words strong enough to express those sufferings. It's as if the four gospel writers vie with each other to take the strongest possible word. And they're at their wit's end. Mark says he was sore amazed. Luke says he was in agony. Matthew says he cried out, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Jesus was overwhelmed. The original Greek word there means he was immersed. He was burdened down with grief. The power of his Godhead had not sustained him in that hour. He never would have made it to Gabbatha or Golgotha. Three times he has to leave his disciples, sleeping disciples, to cry out in agony of body, in agony of soul, laying on the ground as a worm and no man, and certain pressures in him so great that blood, as it were, springs forth from his veins. Physicians today have a, have a word for that, a complicated long word that I won't try to pronounce, of a particular Intense agony that on very rare occasions, blood can come forth from the veins. Jesus sweats drops of blood as the enemy is approaching to betray him. As his choicest friends are sleeping. That's what he thinks of your sin and of my sin. This is the price. He has to pay. To satisfy the wrath of God. What a dastardly thing sin is. Sin is spiritual insanity. Sin is dreadful. Sin is anti-God. Sin brings the wrath of God. But Jesus pays the price. He drinks the cup. Three times he cries out. Three times he gets no answer. The answer is an answer. The no answer is is a no answer. You must drink the cup, my son, is what the silence is saying, down to its bottom, bitter dregs. And you alone can do it, because I'm an infinite God. And as Jonathan Edwards would say, only an infinite God can satisfy an infinite God. No finite man can do the job. How can the finite satisfy the infinite when he's offended? And so the Savior has to come in our nature to die in our nature and pay the price of sin in our nature. At the same time, He must be Almighty God to sustain His sufferings, but also to give satisfaction to the infinite justice of God. So after this third session of prayer, Jesus goes forth now to meet Judas and a band of soldiers. This is, I remind you, the same disciple, the same apostle, who two hours before sat with him at the Last Supper, and who left that supper early to go to the chief priests and Pharisees with an offer to assist them in arresting Jesus. During the time of Passover, hundreds of soldiers called the Roman cohort or band guarded the temple against potential revolutions or uprisings. This band were the most trained military Roman men of the day. I suppose we'd call them the Green Beret or or the Marines. And the chief priests and Pharisees went to the chief captain of this band to ask for help for soldiers from this elite uh, military force to arrest Jesus. And so they had to convince the captain that the Nazarene named Jesus was about to incite a riot or lead a revolt and needed to be stopped before the trouble could no longer be contained. Well, they must have persuaded him. He sent a large part of the band. We don't know if it was 
most of it or all of it, but it appears that it was a good part of it. So let's say half or more, 200 of the 400. They arm themselves with swords and staves. They carry torches and lamps to light their way in the night. And their goal is to surround the garden. They've heard that this man can escape through crowds when, when, they, when other people try to arrest him. And they're going to just bring themselves around and tighter and tighter around that garden like a noose around his neck. And they're thinking, no doubt, that they're going to find him eventually huddled in some pit underneath a, some hole or some place of secrecy, much like Saddam Hussein was found cowering. And they'll arrest him. But how will they know which one he is? Some of them have never seen him. Well, Judas says, and this completes their plan, I'll go up to him and kiss him. And so with their devilish and hypocritical and horrific plans complete, they surround the garden in suspense. And suddenly, unexpected, a man steps out of the garden and takes charge. Whom seek ye? He's asking a sovereign question. Obviously, he's a, he's a king. He's suddenly displaying his royal glory. Theologians have a word for that. Krypsis. That there's just a, a few moments in Jesus' earthly ministry where he didn't hide his royal glory. Where he showed his kingship. Well, this is such a moment. But Judas is so blind. So blind. So intent on his devilish plan that he, he, he just brushes by this amazing display of royal dignity. And he greets Jesus with Hail Master and kisses Him. In the Greek, we're told it's a repeated action. That is, he kisses Him repeatedly. So the entire multitude knows this is the dangerous Nazarene. And friends, those kisses burn. They burn. They sting. They betray And astonishingly, God permits this. Even more astonishingly, Jesus responds to Judas' audacity with a mild rebuke. Friend, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Imagine that. Judas gave every appearance of being a religious, pious man two hours before. What a hypocrite. Friend, but you know, dear friends, we, by nature, we're really no better. Yes, we, don't, we didn't do this particular act, but if we understand the enormity and heinousness of sin, actually every sin is a, is a kissing betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Puritan Stephen Sharnock put it this way. He said, every time we sin and we're in the act of sin, we're saying God is not. Because if we understood what it means to sin against a holy, sinless God, and God were real at that moment, we wouldn't dare to proceed in sin. And so we too have rejected and betrayed Christ with our blatant unbelief, with a vain show sometimes even of religion. Most of us ministers. You know, it was said of the secret of Robert Murray McShane's success in the ministry. When the minister came to visit him and he wasn't there, and a janitor took him around, the janitor took him into McShane's study and said, put your hands out on the desk, put your head in your hands, cry out and weep to God Almighty. And now come out with me. They took him out to the pulpit. He said, get on the pulpit. Throw out your hands and cry and weep to God Almighty. And the whole point, of course, of what he was saying was, the secret to it, Robert Murray McShane's success was, he was in public what he was in private. The holiness in his private study was spilled over on the pulpit. There was nothing fake about the man. He was a genuine article. Too often, far too often, we appear more holy on the pulpit than we do in private. And we have too much hypocritical kissing of our Savior.
Oh, God, help us. Help us to understand our calling. Help us to understand the, the, the magnitude of what it means to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Whether you have ten people in your church or a thousand, it doesn't matter. When's the last time, brother, you sat in your study and did like Edward Payson used to do commonly in his study? He would be so overwhelmed at the thought of being Christ's ambassador that he'd clap his hands for joy in the study and say, Why did he call me worthy to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ? Oh, let us never despise the lofty, dignified calling of the ministry. Let us never, never tolerate any two-facedness in our walk and our talk. Let us feel the sacredness of our calling. Let us say with Thomas Boston, wherever I go, whatever I do, whatever ministry I engage in, I wholly resolve to leave behind the savor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be true men. By God's grace. Well, whom do you seek? That was the sovereign question. There was boldness in these words. The band of soldiers prepared to surround the guard and lift their lamp poles high, search for a man in hiding, and the man they're searching for comes out and meets them without the least fear. And yet they look him straight in the face and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Amazing. They didn't see his royal dignity either. Jesus the Nazarene, literally, they say. Nazareth, of course, as you know, is considered a place of reproach. Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And though the title Jesus of Nazareth can be used reverently, as we witness later in the book of Acts, this multitude, in effect, was implying that Jesus is a false prophet and a wicked man because no prophet, no true prophet, would come from Nazareth. And they want to arrest him, to ridicule him, to despise him, to trample upon him, to destroy him. You see, lots of people seek Jesus. But the question is, are we seeking Jesus in the right way? Billions say they've received Christ, yet give little or no evidence they've been spiritually awakened from the dead. They don't count everything lost for the sake of knowledge of, of the Lord Jesus. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ as the altogether lovely bridegroom and Lord. You see, when these people say, I, I receive Christ or I accepted Christ, so many of them do not receive Him as supremely valuable. Many people, and maybe some of us, receive Him simply as sin forgiver because we love being guilt free. Or as rescuer from hell because we love being pain-free. Or as healer because we love being disease-free. Or as protector because we love being safe. Or as prosperity giver because we love being wealthy. Or as creator because we want a personal universe. Or as lord of history because we want order and purpose. But we don't receive Him as supremely and personally valuable for who He is. You see, we don't receive Him as He really is sometimes. More glorious, more beautiful, more wonderful, more satisfying than anything else in the universe. We don't prize Him and treasure Him and cherish Him and delight in Him. Many, many people today, I'm afraid they're in the millions in America, tens of millions, say they receive Jesus They've been born again. They, they have a new nature. But that new nature has never required any change from their old human nature. See, you don't have to be born again to, be, to, love, to love being guilt-free and pain-free and disease-free and safe and wealthy. But to receive Jesus as supremely valuable, as your treasure, as your Lord and Savior, as your kinsman, as your nearest friend, as, as the one who sticks closer than a brother, as the real number one in your life for your salvation and for your relationship and the greatest reality in all the world for you, more real than the, the chairs you're sitting on at this moment. To have that happen requires a new nature. It requires change in your life. A new love. So that the things you hated before you come to love and the things you loved before you come to hate. 
Jesus then displays his kingly royalty a second time. He responds to the multitude with a second manifestation of kingship by saying in his sovereign self-identification, I am he. Ego, I am. Just literally, I am. Jesus and Nazarene, I am, says the king. The word he in King James Version is in italic print. It means it's not there in the original. We just use it to fill out the sentence. All he said was, I am. And as he does in other I am statements in the Gospel of John, here too, he's proclaiming his deity. John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And in response, the Jews took up stones to kill him. They were realizing, of course, that he was using the language of Exodus 3, in which Moses had said to God, whom shall I say has sent me to the people? And God answered, I am. I am the I am. I'm the Yahweh, the unfaithful, the the faithful, the unchangeable, covenant-keeping God. The great I am. The I was that I was, the I am that I am, the I shall be that I shall be. And Jesus now steps out of this garden, steps out in the moonlight in the garden and says, I am. Leon Morris writes, The soldiers that come out secretly to arrest a fleeing peasant in the gloom, they find themselves confronted by a commanding figure who so far from running away comes out to meet them and speaks to them in the very language of deity itself. And as soon as Jesus says, I am, these hundreds of men fall backward to the ground, lose their weapons, lying helpless. What good are all the torches and lamps and swords and staves and officers and soldiers and captains and plans? When the great Jehovah, the unchangeable covenant-keeping God, speaks. They have no power against Him. Think about it. In the depths of the state of His humiliation, when He's just been crawling as a worm and no man, He still has such power that one word from His lips, or two words, Ego Aime, can cast the best trained soldiers in the best trained army in the world backwards on their feet, helpless before Him. And if that's His power at the height of His humiliation, what will be His power when He comes on the clouds in the glory of His exaltation? Oh, to not be prepared on that day will be dreadful. Dreadful. The old Scottish theologian Robert Rolock put it rather quaintly in these words, If the bleeding of a lamb had such force, what force shall the roaring of a lion have? Where shall the wicked stand? If the voice of the Lord Jesus, humbling like a lamb, standing before them Himself alone, and speaking with gentleness, had such an effect as to throw them down upon the ground, what effect shall that roaring, full of wrath and indignation at that great day, not out of the mouth of a lamb, nor of a humble man, Jesus of Nazareth, but out of the mouth of a lion, out of the mouth of Jesus Christ the Judge, sitting in glory and majesty, saying to the wicked, Away ye cursed! to that fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What effect, I say, shall that voice have? What a difference between these two responses to Jesus' sovereign self-identification, I am. Words of great comfort to the eleven. Words of terror to his enemies. I would love to know if Peter and James and John looked at those 200 on their backs and saw Judas lying on his back. Judas the treasurer whom they never suspected of being a hypocrite. I wonder if they thought in that moment, there but for the grace of God go I. What a wonder, friend, when we've been taught not to fall away from Jesus here and one day fall backward into hell but here to bow before Him. And one day to embrace Him and be with Him forever.
as his perfect bride, sin-free, in glorious, sin-free heaven where all good will be walled in and all evil will be walled out. What a day. When this mortality shall put an immortality and this corruption in corruption, we shall ever be with the Lord. Whom seek ye? Jesus asked the question a second time. He's allowed the soldiers now, the discombobulated soldiers, to grab their materials, their weapons, stand back on their feet, get readjusted, and they're standing before Him again. And the God of second chances gives even these men a second chance and says, Whom seek ye? And you want to run over to them, don't you? And you want to shake them by the shoulders and say, Repent! Repent! Don't you see? King of glory! A blind man cannot repent apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit. And they look him straight in the eye again and they say, Jesus of Nazareth, again. How could they be so blind? Until we consider how many times, how many sermons we've listened to before God saved us. I was saved when I was 14 years of age and there were people in my circles who said, oh, it's so wonderful you're saved so young. I said, young? Young? I threw away 14 years of my life. That's a lot. How could I be so blind for 14 years? The Holy Spirit causes the scales to fall. But these men, the scales didn't fall. They said, Jesus, the Nazarene, again. And then Jesus manifests His kingship a third time, sovereignly. Not only the King's sovereign question, this King's sovereign self-identification, but now the King's sovereign substitution. One of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. A graphic case of conscience study of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, I have told you that I am. If therefore ye seek Me, the King of glory, let these go their way. What a staggering expression of kingly love this is. Not a single soldier. Think about this. These guys are Marines. They're Green Beret. They've been taught if one soldier gets wounded, all of them go to battle. Peter reaches out and rashly, impetuously, true to his character, takes a wild swing at one of them. The guy's name is Malchus. Malchus takes a sidestep. And Peter somehow just picks off his ear. It's laying on the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but I've talked to a lot of Marines in my lifetime. In fact, when I go through airports, whenever I see anyone dressed up in a uniform, I try to go up to them and talk to them, thank them for the service to our country. I often get talking to them about the gospel. And one thing I'll tell you about Marines, you try to ask them, do you think we should be at war in Iraq or in Afghanistan? And, you know, Throughout these years, they always say, Sir, we've got a duty to do. We've got a job to do for our country. And we're going to stand together. The president is chief of our army. We're going to do what he tells us. It's not, not, it's not, it doesn't matter whether we are for or against the war. We don't think that way. When we get in battle, we stand up for our comrades. One gets wounded, we'll risk being in the line of fire to take out his wounded body. We're in it together. Not one of these 200 men take a step to Peter. Why not? Where there is the word of a king, there is power. And the king had spoken. If you seek me, let these go away. Free. I'm their substitute. I'm their substitution. Charles Spurgeon wrote of these words, If you see me, let these go their way. They were like coats of mail to them. The disciples walked securely in the midst of the boisterous mob. The words of Jesus proved to be a right royal word, a divine word, and all men were constrained to obey it. That the saying might be fulfilled, Of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. 
You see, this was not just Jesus protecting his disciples out of kindness to them. He was fulfilling the Father's commission to save his sheep. This is a substitutionary obedience. He will be scourged. Not they. He will be crucified. Not they. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace was upon Him. With His stripes we are healed. Let me be bound for their sakes. Take me, but let these go their way. Oh, the substitutionary royal love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what an encouragement that is for those of you who are ministers. You can have some down times in the ministry, brother. But you have a Savior King who's called you. He'll protect you. He'll bring you through. You've never had to suffer as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, no matter how much you've suffered. All your sufferings are but a shadow compared to His substance of suffering. But you must follow Him in His suffering. He the substance. He, he the front runner. You behind Him. Suffering the shadow to be in, to, so that you be conformed to His image. And so God deals with you in a way in which you will never perish. But these go their way applies in a special way to His servants. No weapon. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. For the, my servant's righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. What a comfort that verse is. And now suddenly, everything changes. The king becomes the lamb. After Jesus has made it abundantly clear that he's in control of everyone in the garden, he lets the disciples go and he turns to his would-be captors and says, you can have me. And we read in verse 12, then, literally in the Greek, therefore, after he's asserted his kingship, the multitude took Jesus and bound him and led him away. The king becomes the lamb. The king's sovereign threefold display now becomes the lamb's threefold submission. First, there's submission in his willingness to be arrested. Verse 12 says, they took Jesus. The original word for took is actually the official Greek term for a formal arrest. They arrested him for the purpose of charging him. Christ, the good shepherd, is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. Jesus wasn't intimidated. He believed the promises of the word of God. That he would have God with him. He believed the prophecies of that word would be fulfilled. He had to be the sheep that was being sheared, that was done with silence at this hour. All of history had been moving toward this hour of his arrest, of his crucifixion. All the centuries, the millennium that had gone on, the millennia that had, had passed, were being geared up for this hour. And so Jesus says to This is your hour, Satan. The hour of the power of darkness. But he knows that deep down, deeper than that, it's his hour. It's his father's hour. His father willed it. His father planned it. Even Judas' betrayal was according to the predetermined knowledge of God the Father. The incarnate Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man, is publicly arrested and taken according to the will of God. The plan of God. No one can tamper with that plan. Not Judas or Caiaphas or Herod or Pilate, much less the fearful disciples. And God had decreed the rise and fall of nations and empires for this end. God had decreed the particular high priest, the particular cohorts who would conspire to kill Jesus, that Jesus, Judas should betray him into their hands, that wicked King Herod and weak-willed Pontius Pilate should fall in with their plans. It was all coming. It was all known to Jesus. It was a dark hour because there was so much evil. In that sense, it was Satan's hour. But it was also Jesus' hour. 
Because in dying, He would destroy him who had the power of death. In dying, as Satan grabbed His heel to crush it, Jesus would take His heel and crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman would get the victory over the seed of the serpent. And so Jesus wasn't afraid. Though it was painful. Though it was real. Jesus knew that Judas, Caiaphas, Herod, Pilate, Roman soldiers, Jerusalem multitude were so in the hands of His Father that they could not so much as move without His will. Why don't we believe that in our lives as well? When you get involved in church troubles and trials and disappointments, you work your heart out, you put your all into your sermon preparation to ministry, and your church goes from 30 back down to 25 people. When you were young, you had visions of preaching to thousands. You dreamt about it. And you say, is God in control? Absolutely. He's in control of every detail of your life. Every hair of your head is numbered. And when your worst fears are realized, it isn't that the Son of God has stepped away from the throne of the universe. It's not like He abdicates responsibility for what is happening and He's abandoning you to the evil that is in the world. Rather, He's operating among the affairs of men to make you His humble servant. So that you learn to cry out with the psalmist, Not unto us, O Lord of heaven, but unto Thee be glory given. In love and truth Thou dost fulfill the counsels of Thy sovereign will. Though nations fail Thy power to own, yet Thou dost reign, and Thou alone. What I do now Thou knowest not, but Thou shalt know hereafter. On the day of judgment, you'll see the whole pattern of your life like a Persian rug laid out before you in all its beautiful color and all the dark strings, the brown and the black ones that symbolize affliction and trials. You'll see that every one of them was needed so that your life can be a beautiful plan to the glory of the God you love. God makes no mistakes. Not with the Savior and not with you. But secondly, Jesus shows His lambness, if you will, not only by being willing to be arrested, but willing to be bound. They took Him and bound Him. What? He said, I'll go with you. Why are they binding Him? Well, they knew, of course, that if they bound someone around the wrist, and that was tradition, and you brought him straight to the judge, and you bound it really tightly, that, that, that blood would even come out of the end of the fingers. If you bound very tightly, you see, like that, the judge would think, wow, I've got some notable criminal here. Look how roughly they're treating him. Probably that's what they meant when they said of Jesus, they bound him. They treated him roughly. Those wonderful, blessed hands. Oh, there's so much symbolism here. We have to almost restrain ourselves. But do remember, friends, that these blessed hands are hands that have never sinned. These are hands that have healed the eyes of the blind and the lame and blessed little children. These are hands that reached out and touched the unclean lepers and they were made whole. These were the hands that picked up a towel and washed the disciples' feet. Hands that broke bread for them in the upper room when they were arguing who was the greatest. Hands that have dripped with bloody sweat in prayer just moments ago to the Father in the garden. They bound these hands. These hands are symbolic of so much more. Let me just mention quickly four things to you. Number one, Jesus is bound to set us free from the bands of sin. Proverbs 5.22 We are holden with the cords of our sin. We're bound by our sin, by nature. But Jesus sets us free. He was bound that we might be unbound. So when He arose and ascended on high, He leads captivity captive, bound by the cords of love to capture His people in the net of His substitutionary gospel. And today, by His Spirit, He's still drawing sinners with those bands of love. Preach on, brother! Your labor will not be in vain. You'll meet people in eternity that were bound to Christ when you were bound to Him here on earth as you preached of Him. Secondly, 
Jesus is bound so that His people might be bound to Him by obedience and love to serve Him all their days. What a beautiful thing this is. When you're bound to Christ to serve Him. And really, you're not dependent on circumstances around you. Paul said, I learned whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Paul and Silas sang in the inner prison. And remember what it says? And the prisoners heard them. <laughs> they never heard singing coming from the inner prison. They heard cursing and groaning and agony. But you see, Paul is saying, when you're in Christ, you've got strength. You've got strength to be bound in obedience and love to Him. You're not dependent on external happiness because you have inward happiness. Ignatius, the church father, said the chains with which he was bound and, and, would, and, and, and would give up his life, he said, I count these chains as my spiritual pearls and count it all joy that I may suffer for Christ's sake who suffered everything for me. See, when we're bound like this, then we're bound by obedience and love. Then we're content. Whatever comes our way, that's a good place to be. So often we grumble, we murmur. And I was a 10-year-old boy. I still remember coming to my mother. She was 42 at the time. And I said, Mother, if you could pick any age you want, you want, you want to be, what would you pick? She said, 42. I said, oh, what a coincidence. That's just what you are. She said, and I'll never forget this, I've learned of whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. A Christian minister of the gospel or a Christian minister's wife has so much more power than we realize just by showing and living and speaking and thinking and acting a life of contentment. With whatever cross Christ deems fitting in His inscrutable wisdom to place upon us. Your people are looking at you, not just to preach the Word, but to, but to walk the Word. And your walk talks more than your talk talks. Because if your walk doesn't talk the way your talk talks, your talk won't talk. People will see as they listen to you. They will hear. They put it all through a sieve of everything they know about you. And it won't be real. Oh, may God help us. May God help us to be bound by obedience and love. To serve Him. To be a willing slave. To be a doulos. To Jesus Christ. Perhaps you heard of the story of an English nobleman who went to California in the 1850s. Made millions more in the gold rush. And then went back to England via New Orleans and did what all tourists did at that time in the 1850s. He, he went to see the infamous slave trading block and uh, came around the corner. There's a beautiful young African girl being sold as a slave. and Two guys in the back of the crowd outvying each other to, to purchase her and whispering to each other what they would do if they got her. And it wasn't good. And, and the... The nobleman standing right behind him overheard them and was upset and incensed, actually. And he got the auctioneer's attention. He said, I'll give twice the amount anyone will ever give for the price of this slave. And the auctioneer stopped in his tracks and said, no one's ever given that much for a slave before. Yet you really got the money. The man reached into his pocket, waved the bills. The auctioneer said, sold. The man came up, brought the young lady down, and she spit him in the face. He wiped the spit away. He took her into a downtown area, went into an office, Got the guy behind the desk to give him some papers, signed them, handed them to the young lady, said, these are your manumission papers. And she spit him in the face. He wiped the spit away. He said, don't you understand? You're free. And she just stared at him. Finally, she fell at his feet. She wept and wept and wept. She looked up at him. She said, sir, do you mean to tell me that you paid twice the amount anyone has ever paid for a slave just to set me free? He said, yes. And she began to weep again. She wept and wept. Finally, she looked up and she said, Sir, I have just one favor to ask of you. Can I be your slave forever? You see, that's the way a Christian feels about Jesus Christ. He was bound for me. I want to be bound back to Him. The psalmist says, we sing it in Psalm 116, I am thy servant, O Lord, bound yet free, thy handmaid son whose shackles thou hast broken. 
Redeemed by grace, I'll render as a token of gratitude my constant praise to Thee. See, when you're bound back to Him who was bound for you, you want to lay down your whole life for Him. And as you do so, you know you're but an unworthy servant after all. And then thirdly, Jesus is bound above all by the will of the Father. His meat and His drink is to do the will of God. Martin Luther once said, God bound to God. How wondrous is the salvation of God. He's bound to Himself and to His own work. He's bound to do everything His Father told Him to do. He's the lowly servant of the Lord. He's the obedient servant. So He says, bind me. It's okay. He doesn't object. He doesn't push them away. So I told you I'd go with you. They take Him. Not a word when He's arrested. They bind Him. Not a word. This is the King, remember. Who's in charge. But now He's the Lamb. And the reason He can't say a word is because He who knew no sin became sin that you might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He's representing you there. And you have not one word to say in the presence of Almighty God. Not one answer upon a thousand questions. Because we're guilty. He's the guilty one. He's the debtor. Though he knew no sin. That's what made Martin Luther say, though it sounds terrible, sounds rash and bold and unsound, but he said, he who knew no sin became the greatest sinner on earth. Luther's just saying, he's taken over our sin. Bound by the will of the Father. And then fourthly, he's bound here to restore as a second Adam what was lost by the first Adam. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but there's a tremendous parallelism between the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Eden. Opposite things occur every step of the way. There's two Adams in two gardens. Let me mention just a few. The first Adam sinned in the garden. The second Adam bore sin in the garden. First Adam was surrounded with glory and honor and beauty and harmony and refused to obey. The second Adam was surrounded with bitterness and sorrow and Gethsemane and was obedient unto death. First Adam was tempted by Satan and fell. The second Adam was tempted by all the forces of hell and did not fall. First Adam's hands reached out to grasp sin. The second Adam's hands were bound to pay for sin. First Adam was guilty and arrested by God during the cool of the day. The second Adam was innocent and arrested by men in the middle of the night. The first Adam hid himself after fleeing. The second Adam revealed himself after walking into the moonlight. First Adam took fruit from Eve's hand. Second Adam took the cup from his father's hand. First Adam was conquered by the devil. Second Adam conquered the devil. First Adam forfeited and lost grace in paradise. Paradise, the second Adam merited and applied grace in Gethsemane. First Adam was driven out of Eden. Second Adam was willingly led out of Gethsemane so that room might be made in the heavenly garden of paradise for sinners who trust in Him. You see, praise be to God. Christ restored and regained all that was lost in Adam and more. In Eden, the sword was drawn and the conflict of ages began. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed and the eternal gospel was displayed. They took him and they bound him. And then thirdly, he was silent in his submission as the lamb when he was led away. Our text says. The leader and the shepherd of God's people is led away as a lamb to the slaughter. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened out his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before his shears is dumb. So he opens not his mouth. And it's incredible how remarkably accurately this prophecy is now fulfilled. You see, sheep that were fed in the fields of Kidron were often led through a sheep gate to be sacrificed. That was a type of the Messianic Lamb of God to come. For the Lamb of Lambs is now led through that very same field, through that very same gate, to be sacrificed. And still today, you know, the Palestinians here are Christians that think Jesus is going to come on this earth for a while and He's going to come through that sheep gate as He comes to restore peace on the earth. And you know what, you know what they've done, right? The Palestinians have, 
have put blocks in that gate. They've cemented it all shut so Jesus can't get through. The gate is completely shut up now in their stupidity. But Jesus, you see, is now led from place to place. Seven miles like a wandering sheep that you and I, who like David, are wandering sheep, might find rest and guidance in him. He goes from place to place. Led from Annas to Caiaphas to Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate, and then to the cross. Never had a drop of water. Always going, being led away as your substitute. He was taken, arrested for criminals. He was bound for captives. He's led away for wanderers. In the midst of it all, he's a willing, submissive servant. He's the Lamb. For you. He's arrested so that he can arrest us as our prophet and bring us from darkness into his marvelous light. He's bound so that we can be freed from the burden of sin and guilt that threatens to destroy us. When his priest, he offers up an acceptable sacrifice to God on our behalf, he's led away so that he can govern us as our king by his word and spirit and lead us back to God and preserve and guide and defend us. In the salvation he has purchased for us. What a wonder this is. The deliverer delivering himself up. The arrester allowing himself to be arrested. The liberator bound. The great leader led away. All for you. So that you can be with God forever. So let us, in closing now, let us honor the authority of Jesus Christ as King and follow Him as Lamb with greater fear and greater reverence, submitting to the trials He he imposes upon us without complaint, with cheerfulness and thanksgiving, being willing to drink the cup He puts in our hand, which is always less than the cup He puts, He has taken in His hand. In fact, His cup of blood becomes our cup of wine. And we may feast with Him at the supper of the Lord, drinking His cup, because all our sorrows He turns to joys. And all that we think are mistakes He turns in His plan to make things right. And so let us learn to know what it means to be silent. Silent under His smiting hand, His afflicting hand. He submitted to everything here. He submitted to the goal of the multitude. Verse 43, and and I'm, I'm switching just a moment to Luke 23. He submitted to the hypocrisy of the betrayer. Verse 44 and 45. To the grasp of the captors, verse 46. To the impetuosity of his disciples, verse 47. To the heavy-handedness of his enemies, 48 and 49. To the fulfillment of Scripture, 49. In other words, he embraced the cross that was coming and was already now. We have to learn from that. Lord, help us to cherish ought to be our prayer. To cherish the privilege of entering into the fellowship of His sufferings. And to embrace His cross. To be more conformed to Him. To be willing to suffer here. That we may reign with Him forever hereafter. Amen. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank Thee so much for our amazing King Lamb, Gethsemane Savior, Lord. We pray that His threefold display of sovereignty and His threefold display of lamb-like silence may humble us and may cause us to examine ourselves and to be comforted and to go forth in ministry with fresh courage, remembering what He has done for us. O God, work valiantly in our hearts, we pray, and make us more like Jesus, more willing to follow Him, more willing to embrace the crosses, more willing to sound less like the world and more like true believers. Oh, may it be said of us, 
what John Bunyan once said of God's people when he said God's people are like bells. The harder they are hit, the better they sound. But our ministries portray that. So that when we are in the midst of suffering, be it as a minister or a minister's wife or a ministry worker of any kind, people watching us will be able to say, you can see, you can see that Christianity is real in our pastor or in our pastor's wife. Because when they get into difficulty, they walk even closer with Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.